This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Bonds. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got a bunch of Australian news we'll start off with. So Rosemary's going to have some uh, a strong presence in this episode, as if she didn't already. Um, we'll talk about some of uh, Australian entrepreneur Mike Cannon Brooks's, um, and he's the founder of Atlassian, which is an amazing suite of software products. Um, some of his ideas for Australia's renewable future. We'll talk a little bit about uh, battery manufacturer Red Earth and some of the things they're doing, kind of like Tesla's Powerwall. They have a bunch of different storage solutions um, over in Australia. We'll talk about some of the seas and wind in Australia. And then moving on, we'll chat a little bit about this reindeer situation uh, with the Sami people in Norway. It's a really interesting ruling um, that could get a wind farm dismantled if their lawyer is right. We'll talk about crabs and their electric magnetic fields. We'll talk about suction caissons and some of the new uh, offshore wind uh, turbine foundation jackets that have just been installed, an update on the Horn C2 uh, wind farm, a 107-meter wind turbine blade mold, and lastly, we'll chat a little bit about Puerto Rico and their uh, electric grid rebuild. Before we get going, I want to remind you to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. It's growing fast, and you can get a weekly update from us. Uh, with new wind energy news all from around the web, as well as alerts for about the new podcasts and videos. And definitely subscribe to Rosemary Barnes' YouTube channel, which you'll also find in the description of this podcast. So, Rosemary, come up on stage. Let's talk about <laughs> Australia here. Yes, so, um, Mike Cannon-Brooks, uh, again, he's a co-founder, <laughs> co-CEO of Atlassian. They make uh, Trello, Jura, which is their um, project development software. So, they tons of teams work with that. Um, getting projects from start to finish and a lot of other stuff. So he's uh, a big uh, entrepreneur in Australia, and he says they should be aiming for 500% renewables. Rosemary, 500% seems ambitious. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about it at the moment, um, the amount of coal, thermal coal that Australia exports, I don't know what percentage we're at in terms of fossil fuel generation, but definitely more than 100%. So I guess it's just an extension of that. Um, So yeah, it doesn't sound out there to me. And I'm a big time, big time fan of Mike Cannonbrooks. I describe him as Australia's Bill Gates because, you know, he's started, got his money through software and then has used his profile and, and money to really get into some, I don't know, world improving projects, or at least that's what he's, he's trying to do. He was the, he first came on my radar when he was the one who tweeted Elon Musk about our, um, battery or need for a battery in South Australia. And that was what set off that famous Hornsdale battery project where, you know, it was, if it was, wasn't done in, I think it was three months, then it was free. And 
yeah, Elon Musk managed to make that happen. And all of a sudden, yeah, batteries were a thing in Australia. And since then, Mike Cunningbrooks has gotten involved in several other high, proje- high profile projects, uh, most kind of exciting of which is the Sun Cable project, which is a massive solar farm in, um, I think it's Western Australia, Northern Western Australia, and then they're going to build like a three or 4,000 kilometre long cable to supply Singapore and maybe Indonesia along the way with uh, a bunch of renewable electricity. Well, speaking of batteries, uh, so this company Red Earth uh, is down your way. They're an Australia company and they just got a really well subscribed uh, round of funding. And it seems like they're doing similar things. I mean, one of their uh, photos is a Red Earth energy storage battery outside of a house. So, I mean, Rosemary, why is uh, battery storage so integral to Australia's future? Well, I think there's two things. One, we have the highest penetration of rooftop solar in the world. I think 20 or 25% of Australian houses have, have solar panels on their roofs, which um, probably sounds like a lot to someone anywhere else. And it's not... It's certainly not ideology. I mean, if you look at the places where there's a lot of solar panels, it's not, you know, like lefty, greeny kind of um, (laughs) enclaves. It's places with a lot of sun. They just simply are good economics. In fact, I think I can recall a political scandal a few years ago where it turned out that a really anti-renewables politician had solar panels on his roof and that was like this big uh, amusing scandal um, kind of in the opposite direction to what you might expect. So yeah, there's that. There's a lot of people with solar. And then there's um, this other thing, which is um, that Australians are are pretty pissed off at the utilities for perceived price gouging. We have really high electricity prices. And uh, I mean, I'm not an an expert on why exactly, but the kind of common interpretation is that the um, electricity companies have uh, they've kind of rotted the the system. There's these specific, then they're not public owned, but they are, you know, strongly regulated and they can only increase their prices if the government allows them to basically, which they do by investing in something and then, you know, saying they need to increase their prices to recoup the investment. And the general impression is that they invested purely to raise their prices, not in a way that would make, you know, the um, electricity grid more reliable or more suitable for the future, more suitable for more renewables. And everyone's really annoyed about their really high electricity prices rooftop solar owners are annoyed that the you know the price they get for their solar is um has has decreased a lot so i think these two things together mean that people one have the the will to you know use less of the utilities electricity and two the capability to do it because we get so much sunshine well alan uh you know you've seen how elon musk i think he's a great example um and bill gates and some other you know billionaire entrepreneurs, philanthropists in the U.S. sort of use their political power to get things moving. I mean, is this a situation where you could see someone like Mike Cannon Brooks stepping in to just make these lasting changes, not just advocate for a battery project, but just the way things are done? I mean, is that something that you would see? That's definitely happened here in in the U.S., right? Um, Him moving factories to this state or that state. Um, Alan, I mean, do you think that's something that might happen in Australia? I think it, it's possible. I think in the United States, we get a little bit of a different um, governmental economic system than, than other parts of the world. In the United States, like Bill Gates doesn't seem to have a lot of influence on Capitol Hill on projects. And so what they tend to be doing is investing in the projects on their own and then going to tell congressmen, senators how well it's doing or 
where the United States should inv- quote, quote unquote invest in. I don't know if you can call it an investment, but essentially, you know, where should you th- the U.S. government throw the weight around in? Uh, I think the same things happened to Elon Musk. I think he's realized that getting Congress and the administration to do anything consistently is going to be very difficult. So what they do instead is they develop the projects on their own and they have the wherewithal to do that. I think Bill Gates has been pushing uh, basically gen, what they call Generation 4 nuclear power and, and also looking at fusion a little bit, things that are not necessarily on the radar. Uh, and, I, and Australia can do the same thing. I think if there's enough economic wealth and enough uh, willpower that those those that are companies and people that are well off enough can actually create the thing they want to see, you just can't rely upon the government to deliver necessarily reliable energy sources. And we're seeing that now in Europe really play out big time. Prices of electricity have skyrocketed. Uh, The availability of electricity has gone down in some places, and they're talking about blackouts. That's a bad situation. And you you wish that uh, Europe doesn't have those Bill Gates. Name the Bill Gates in Europe. I can't. Right. And I, I think that's not a great model. I think the U.S. model is a little bit better in the sense that we've been able to push through some of those technology challenges because we've had essentially billionaires that have gotten it done. And Australia can be in a, in a similar boat to the United States, which I think would be a great advantage to Australia because it's so full of natural resources and uh, a well-educated workforce. I mean, what's your take, Rosemary, as Australia starts to, you know, get pushed to center stage a little bit because of its natural resources? Um, what's a way for some of these problems like the electric, quote-unquote, price gouging to get better? Well, I think that we need to recognize that the clean energy transition is a huge opportunity for Australia and um, not just, you know, some problem that's going to happen to our um, current economy, which is to a large extent based around coal not it's actually not as based around coal as um certain people would have you think but certainly recognize opportunity and i do think that that's starting to to happen a lot um that even many of the federal politicians who have been kind of standing in the way of change are now starting to say okay there's there's opportunities not just for you know green electricity that we generate and getting it offshore whether it's via a subsea cable or via green hydrogen but we've also got all these minerals and you know that's uh, for me that's one of the most exciting opportunities for the future of Australia and um and for the world if I, I don't want to sound too kind of uh, to, to overdo it too much but yeah I mean it's we, your time it's, it's your a, time it's our time to shine I mean they call Australia the lucky country which is um supposed to be like a a, an insult a sarcastic kind of insult that we just rely on on dumb luck rather than um you know making things happen and i think this is a really clear example that um you know australia has been one of the real laggards in climate action we're still don't have a federal target for net zero at at any time as soon as possible is the official line um yet i do think that with the you know, really great um, wind and solar resources that we have, plus all of the minerals that we have, and the you know already got a big mining industry that will know how to how to get them out. I think I think we're going to be lucky again. Don't forget spiders. Got really a good <laughs> crop of big spiders. So, <laughs> Alan, you look like you had something to, to add there. Well, from us from the Australian point of view, I think there's an interesting 
uh, scenario that's going to play out. And I, I think Australia needs to really think about this. Obviously, Australia is full of natural resources uh, and coal being one of the big ones. The question is, do you want to be an exporter of energy or do you want to be an exporter of things that are much more valuable? Do you want to set up a manufacturing facility and make iPhones at $1,000 a pop? Or do you want to make a small 2 3% margin on selling electricity to, to Singapore? There, that's the real trade-off that has to be made. And I think with the abundance of energy, any country with an abundance of energy can have an abundance of manufacturing and creation, uh, a, a creative economy that could drive it into the future. And I think it's really um, interesting that Australia is pointing its future in ways that are small on margins and not low, and not high on growth. Uh, because I think they're, it's totally poised to do some really significant things because it has all the pieces, kind of like the United States does, has all the pieces to really have an economic boom. Yeah, no, I massively agree with you. I, I think that that's definitely true. And we do see some baby steps towards that and some bigger things. I think that we'll start with, um, you know, we, we already dig a lot of minerals out of the ground, but they're usually just shipped for processing somewhere else. I, I think and hope that we'll do a lot more of that processing in Australia soon. And there are some projects already started to get into that. But then there's also um, a lot of the manufacturing we used to have like maybe 50 years ago that we lost because energy prices went up and also cost of labor went up. I think, you know, all of this clean, clean eventually will be cheap energy that we have will take care of the first problem. And then the second problem, labor, I think that's like advanced manufacturing is, is going to solve that problem too. So I think we're going to see like a big full circle um, for Australia's economy to maybe look a lot more like it did 50 years ago in a way, but also in a, you know, in an advanced way. So I, I think advanced manufacturing is the key part of the, the puzzle that, that doesn't happen by luck. That's something that you actually have to get in there and do do some projects. And um, yeah, I see a few things now, but I would I would love to see a lot more focus on on that in the future in Australia. Well, moving on, um, interesting story coming out of Norway. So there's uh, an indigenous people called the Sami, and uh, they herd reindeer. This is important to them culturally. It's something I'm doing for forever. And a wind farm was given licenses to build, and there's 151 turbines standing uh, on the Fossen Peninsula. And a recent ruling by the Supreme Court of Norway said that these are, you know, essentially the license to build these are void, that they violated the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Basically, Article 27 of the UN Treaty um, saying that ethnic people should be, you know, should not be denied the right to enjoy their own culture, practice their own religion, profess um, their own language. And this cultural practice of reindeer herding extends within that. So um, this is really interesting because obviously 151 turbines is a very large project, a lot of money, and it's fully built. And now they're saying that this can't operate. So Alan, what's what's your take here? This This doesn't sound like something that could be stopped this easily. It's so much money involved, so much construction, not to mention... Why now? Why the ruling at the end when it's already built? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, there's a lot of pieces to this that are unanswered at the moment. And yeah, the, the, well, the stories are very vague or have been very vague. Right. And I think the lawyers are still positioning themselves. The, the really critical piece is why is the Supreme Court ruling on it now? I guess time it takes time to process through any judicial system. But like usually that happens before you start digging, not after it's already in service. 
And to do it afterwards seems like it's like uh, you know double jeopardy in a sense. Like we heard this out, we got licenses, we got all this stuff done, and then we go back around a second time and we can get somebody to rule against it. And what I think what eventually is going to happen here is they're going to negotiate some sort of settlement between the, the two opposing sides because I don't think the wind turbines can really come down. It isn't like all people in Norway are not using power. They probably all are. And so it's a benefit to everybody, not just a, a select group of people that are have electricity in Norway. Uh, but the, I think the other piece, which we're going to talk about some animal things today, is is it really real that the that the the animals are scared of the wind turbines? Because I've seen a lot of pictures of animals next to wind turbines. I saw there's one from South Africa recently where you see giraffes wandering around wind turbines. I'm thinking, well, they're probably the most at risk because they're so damn tall. <laughs> you know, if they can look closer to the wind turbine than any other species that I can think of. They're not sensitive to it clearly. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a lot of, a, a lot of politics going on. And unfortunately it's a, it's now in court, which is not good. Yeah. This is an interesting one because there's a lot on environmental justice here in the U S and, you know, we've found that, you know, a lot of minorities were put in less desirable places to live and then pipelines run through their, through their land where they're living or a factory is built very close to them. There's a runoff, there's cancerous, you know, toxic chemicals in the water that they're drinking, but not in the more affluent parts of the country. So I think that's part of what's at issue here. Now, is that really what's going on with uh, wind turbines and this particular, um, you know, group of people, the Sami? I'm not sure. Um, but I think that's probably at least a little bit of it, right? That just the fact that why why do we have to live amongst these when everyone else doesn't? I mean, Rosemary, what's your take on this? Because, again, it is vague. It's, there's still a lot that needs to be fleshed out, it seems like. But what uh, what struck you about this, this story? Well, to me, um, I noticed... In Norway, they don't have as established a wind industry as they do in neighbouring Sweden, which has the same indigenous populations. Um, and the yeah, reindeer herding is also important in northern Sweden, where I worked a lot for um, – I was working on one of the big wind farms up in, in northern Sweden near Luleå. And in Sweden, they've worked it out anyway. Um, so they have I, – I know that the, the Sami aren't 100% happy with it, but they do seem to have reached some sort of agreement – I don't know if it was just imposed on them by the government in Sweden or if there was a you know legitimate agreement made, but I would expect that something similar is going to work out in Norway and this is probably you know the first first time that we've seen seen this conflict in Norway and so it's taking a long time to work out but I know that um, it hasn't been all the way through the courts yet they've you know made this ruling that it, there's some inconsistency with this UN um, rule but the implication of that hasn't been ruled on yet it's just kind of speculation that oh they might have to tear the turbines down I expect that they will they'll reach an agreement like Alan said I think that they're going to find a way for the turbines to stay and to you know keep everyone at least somewhat happy well, and with so much money at stake, I mean, when you start talking about he said, she said claims, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, a man living on a piece of land that a wind farm was then built on, he said, I can't sleep, um, you know, with the sound. That's kind of unknowable, whether that's true or not. I guess you could observe him somehow. But in this case, you would definitely see, you know, companies that have a lot of money to lose, sending private investigators out to observe the animals, right? Just... Someone's camped out in the woods, looking, watching at the animals' uh, habits. Have them on video. 
Do they, are they actually frightened by this? Is this actually a thing? You'd see that on probably both sides. The lawyers wanting to prove their case say, yeah, this is a, a real issue, or someone else on the other side saying it maybe isn't as big an issue as, um, as they're making it out to be. I'm not saying either that's right or wrong. That's probably something that's going to happen to sort of put some evidence in play for the effect of these animals. Because, again, we've been talking about underwater observation, right, for what's going on in these eco labs underneath the uh, wind turbine, what's what's happening with the vegetation and the plant life and, um, all, you know, those little ecosystems. I'm sure they're going to do the same thing here. Let's actually observe these animals and see what's happening. Because if you can use this as an example, then you can do better in the future. Like, okay, maybe we do need to put these offshore. Um, maybe we need, do need to put them in some other place to keep these people um, able to have, you know, full self-determination and, and not have their cultural um, practices stripped from them, which is, you know, something that they should be able to, you know, retain their cultural heritage. Alan, it sounds like you have something else here to add, maybe. I, I just think there's, in these situations, what tends to happen is that it's this, uh, we'll call it an injunction for the time being, this injunction tends to spread, right? So it empowers uh, other groups to do the same thing and I'm, you know, I don't. I, I think if the Supreme Court was was a little wiser in this, I think they would have brought the two sides together and said, "You don't really want us ruling on this. You want to settle this outside of this courtroom." And, I, and that's how most things get settled. At least it do, they do in America. Very few of these things actually go to to trial. A lot of them, and when they do go to a final judgment like this, it just causes more grief on both sides and it's probably worth i think they could have reached some other agreement we'll see yeah well hopefully that they can you know, like you said come to an agreement and this isn't a point of contention and that these people can continue to live their lives and um renewable energy can find its way into norway um as rosemary said but we'll see so moving on speaking of more wildlife um brown crabs have been found to be attracted to undersea cables and that it seems like this is from research in Scotland that they are attracted to the electromagnetic uh, field, which then causes them to sort of just like stop what they're doing, not really forage for food, just hang out and then maybe starve to death. I'm not sure exactly if that's what they're implying, but it says they're not they're not. Uh, here's a here's a quote by one of the researchers. If they're not moving, they're not foraging for food or seeking a mate. And that's obviously a major cause of um concern. So, uh, Rosemary, this seems like just a, yet another check in the, the list of things we didn't have any idea were going to happen to, you know, construction out in the wild. Yeah, I think so. I, and I think that it definitely needs more study. Um, so far they've just mentioned it's a, it's impact on, on one crab. And I think even, even that isn't that well known. So let's study it some more. And I also wonder if there's not some simple things that you could do in the cases where the, you know, local wildlife, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, whether it's crabs or, you know, some other creature, if, if it turns out to be a thing that some animals are bothered by the electromagnetic field, then I mean, it, I think the electromagnetic field, doesn't it decay like with the inverse cube of the distance? So maybe it would be as simple as putting a cage over the, the cables in those areas, which is, you know, an extra cost. But I, my instinct is that it probably won't, won't be super widespread because I mean, this is, 
not the first time that someone has studied animals, um, you know, with relation to offshore wind or um, subsea cables. So, yeah, I think we need more study to see see the impact and then see what kind of solutions we can find where where there are impacted animals. Alan, you're our electrical engineer. What do you have to add here? I mean, can they make thicker thicker uh, shielding, thicker insulation? I mean, what is there any anything to be done here, or is there just going to be some metal electromagnetic field that leaks out? Uh, there will always be some magnetic field that leaks out. The question is, do we have enough? field strength or at the right uh, frequency, so to call it. And the re- I, I did research on this just a little bit before the show and pulled one of the scientific articles and I was skimming through it like, oh, this is kind of fascinating. These There is, has been a lot of work on, on uh, undersea crabs and, and magnetic fields. It's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, but there's a lot of you know people who are um, involved with animals don't know a lot about electrical activity or, or electrical engineering in particular. Uh, so there's a lot of things you can do to actually shield cables from magnetic fields. You can put things like nickel and things that are magnetic absorbing materials can go into the cable. You could also do things like raise the voltage, which means there's less current, which means there can be less magnetic fields. So you actually operate at a higher voltage. Or you could do things like change the frequency. It looks like the researchers are using basically steady currents uh, not alternating currents. Like if, maybe you could alternate the current at a high enough frequency that the crab just ignore it. Uh, there's so there's a lot of variables you could play with here, and at, right now it's just uh, as a as a little news article talks about the the crab are reacting to uh, magnetic fields that could be generated by a refrigerator magnet. Well. It's that's a low a case, bar. Yeah, it's a low it's bar. A, it's a pretty low bar, right? And so what are you going to do? I, you know, I don't know if there's a lot of options there, but it, it – okay, so here's, here's where I think this goes. I think you're going to have a lot more study on these undersea creatures because if they found a crab that reacts to these magnetic fields, whatever you deem them to be, then what about all the other species that are floating around in, in, the, in the North Sea? What are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer there. Besides, put a wind turbine in, turn it on, and see what happens. I think you're going to have to do that on some sort of temporary basis just to see what the heck's going on. Because you can't check every species of fish, crab, whatever, whale that's running through that area. Because it's just going to take forever. So... I, I'm just curious what they think of the end goal is this. If you're going to have renewable energy, which I think is a great idea, then you're going to have to give a little, take a little to figure out how to make it work. There's, I, and most maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think there's there'd be a, a, a huge push to just ignore the ecology. Is there? Oh, I, I don't think so. I, I Usually, I mean, always the wind farms have to, you know, obey the environmental laws. And we've seen in Australia, we've seen plenty of, of problems that people are having, you know, clearing those. So I think that they're being taken seriously, but there's always something that you can do to minimize the, the danger. So yeah, I don't think anybody's saying, um, who cares about the crabs or any other creature, but it's a matter of, you know, understanding what the danger is so that you can take appropriate mitigation rather than just saying, you know, no more offshore wind until we figure out what's going on with this crab. Um, yeah, but I certainly feel for the for the crab. I don't I don't want this species to <laughs> to suffer any more than any other species. Well, you know, this is an effect also seen in humans. 
video games keep many a young man stuck indoors for 12, 15 hours a day. They don't go outside to see the sun, to play sports, go on dates. It's That's the same exactly, thing. It's, it's, it's a exactly what I thought when I when I read that article. It sounds like these crabs are becoming couch potatoes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but I I do think this is interesting because this is that you know humans we're really smart we're great animals, um, <laughs> but we don't put ourselves into this like we don't we forget that so many other creatures have so many different senses that we don't have right. We can't detect electric magnetic fields. Sharks swim around through what is it radar or like or infrared. Obviously, whales communicate via sonar. It's it's a crazy world. I think it's hard for us as a species to to even like think of those things when we're engineering or when we're solving engineering problems, right? You just like can't solve for every other sense that every animal has. We just have like these five dumb ones. Like we can see stuff and we can touch stuff. We just stumble around like Frankenstein's, but you know, bees are landing on flowers that have the most like biggest electromagnetic field. So anyway, um, interesting stuff. Yeah. We'll see what comes of it. But these brown crabs would be great um, Fortnite players as well. <laughs> so moving on, the Sea Green Wind Farm is getting um, built as we speak. And they're going to be one of the, the first very large wind farms to be built almost entirely with suction caisson um, jackets. So this is a interesting technology that's it's it's old so it's not actually it's not actually that interesting it's really simple but it's good for the wildlife especially because we talked about how just damaging pile driving could potentially be to some of these marine animals especially whales which love to listen to the all those sweet sonar sounds um but a suction caisson acts like a basically like an inverted bucket so if you took a bucket you drilled a hole in it and you just sort of shoved it down you know, into the soft sand of the beach. That's essentially how a suction caisson works. And then you can actually draw the water out um, that it traps inside to help create like an even stronger seal into the seabed. So they're doing this obviously with these gigantic, um, you know, turbine jacket foundations, but they're so heavy and they're just letting them sink in and essentially embed themselves to their own weight and the suction action into the bottom of the seabed. So again, this is great because there's no pile driving. And they've been proven out pretty well in the oil and gas industry um, to work. So I think that's really interesting. Alan, as uh, I'll let you, well, engineer number one, do you, why don't they use this everywhere? I assume it's a partly related to the seabed like composition, right? So rockier areas, this is not going to work. Um, but why is why is this the first time this is being done on such a large scale at the Sea Green Wind Farm? I think it has to do with cost. I, I think it's all driven by cost. I think you would have to have a much uh, a different sort of caisson setup to to do that. It makes me think it's it's wider uh, just to get the pressure differential. Because what you're doing is you're using suction to pull this thing down into the earth. Uh, so the bigger the diameter of the caisson, the more force you could have to pull it down, which Bigger diameter equals more steel. More steel equals more money. Um, and that's my guess. It has to do with cost materials, probably. But, I, I you know, the the technology has been around for a while. And I, I, I kind of wonder, in the, hey, in the United States, particularly every individual state and God knows what our federal government's doing, uh, what they'll do is they'll put it in by code, right? They'll make it a requirement that you use certain kinds of, of uh pile driving techniques or, or means of getting uh, steel in the ground, essentially, and edict it, 
That's what's likely to happen along the East Coast up here. That's what's likely to happen for a lot of reasons. And one of the technology challenges is uh, we don't know. We don't know, right? And I think on the in my part of the world, I don't think we've tried it. So we get out there with a you know a five million dollar vacuum seal <laughs> case on, and it goes awry. Then it, I don't know what you do. You're stuck. <laughs> and, and that's the trouble, right? Is that there's got to be a lot of engineers and geologists that are saying, this is the kind of system you can use in this kind of area because the terrain is like this. It's rocky, it's sandy, it's muddy, it's whatever. Uh, so it isn't like uh, uh, we're just going to do it blind. But, you know, getting things legislated is like doing it blind. Rosemary, because because you have, uh, I think this is interesting in, in Australia because you have these huge coral reefs, right? You got this sort of natural barrier from the outside world. I don't know what you do trying to put wind, anything out there in the ocean because you got to come across <laughs> that in certain parts of Australia, right? And, 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 yeah, don't that... you have just a difficulty there? They're not putting wind turbines anywhere near our, our reefs. I, I, I hope and I'm 100% sure that no, no one's putting a, a wind turbine. So? In. No, no way that, I mean, um, you should go to the Great Barrier Reef while you, while you still can. But, um, and there's some other ones too, the Ningaloo Reef. And I mean, they're amazing, um, amazing areas. There's nothing like that any, anywhere else. There's plenty of coastline in Australia that, um, doesn't have something, you know, totally unique like that, um, to put wind turbines. So, the solution to that problem is very easy. You just simply don't. Um, but I actually don't know a lot about um, offshore in Australia. We don't have any yet, but we will soon. And I'm definitely keen to look into it more for, for my YouTube channel and just for general interest. I'd also really love to, to be part of some of these projects professionally. But I mean, one of the things with Australia is that um, our, um, I know that the the sea level it it increases rapidly you know there's a big drop off um sudden we don't have a lot of shallow water around australia like they do in europe um so that's why australia hasn't been an early adopter of offshore wind also because we have so much space onshore but now um yeah i know this is i, I don't want to segue into one of the other topics dan because that's your job but i know that we are going to get some some more projects in australia now and it's not as much because it's like a really easy place to put offshore wind um compared to onshore there's lots of onshore wind sites left in australia still undeveloped but it's because the resource there is so good the capacity factors are high and i think the most important thing is that it actually really closely matches the the load as well so you know the time when wind speeds are at their highest is the same as when people are using the most electricity and there's good sites located close to existing ele big electricity users and, and grids and stuff. So I'll be really interested to learn more about the, the yeah, the technologies that they're using because I know we've got these deep waters. I haven't heard people proposing any floating wind farms. So, yeah, I have to have to find out. With, uh, with onshore being so attractive in Australia, I mean, do you feel like your country will just kind of wait it out? Because, you know, floating wind is still pretty unproven, right? It's new. Like the engineering I'm sure is, is good. And I don't think any of these wind farms with floating wind are going to, you know, go under, um, no pun intended, but <laughs> you know, you, if, if things are really good onshore in Australia, why be an early adopter of a, of a, a still new technology? 
just the dollars. Uh, it, it makes economic sense. Um, that's what the project developers are saying. Anyway, there's just so much more value in the, you know, if you can um, sell electricity at the, um, the peak peak power price time, then it can be a lot more expensive to install it and you still make more money overall. So uh, I think that, that that's, there's a, a bunch of other smaller reasons, but to me, that's the, the number one main big reason why anyone's bothering. Well, you're going to have less spiders in your, in your nacelles <laughs> if you're offshore. You know, you know, I so, actually, I just, you've been going on about in, spiders. In the bro- there's, there's one <laughs> the on my, <laughs> there's a spider on my wall watching, watching me record the, the podcast. It's, uh, yeah. If, if you're in danger, blink twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can, we can handle that, that sort of thing in Australia. <laughs> you guys are more robust than us here in the U.S. <laughs> Um, so moving on, Horn, Horn C2, which is uh, the largest wind farm in the world or offshore wind farm in the world at the moment, um, they just started installing turbines at the end of May and their first one. So their first one went down in May and they're already 100 turbines down, which strikes me as just remarkable. Um, and they've still got a, about, you know, 65 to go. Uh, Rosemary, does that surprise you that in only five and a half months that these huge jack-up vessels are able to install a hundred of these massive turbines out in the ocean? Yeah, it did. It surprised me a lot. But on the other hand, I have never been closely involved with an offshore installation. So I don't even know if it's unusual or not. Um, maybe just in general, the industry works, <laughs> works very, very fast. I guess it makes sense if everything's, you know, the day rate that they'd be paying for all the equipment they need would be extremely high. So you would want to go fast. But I mean, in general, people try and get People try and get construction projects done as fast as they can. I, I think it's a pretty normal thing to do onshore or offshore. So yeah, I mean, it's just made me even more like I've just got to, I've got to get involved in some more offshore projects. I've got to go out and, and see because you know there's going to be so much more. It's super important, um, you know, part of additional ca- renewable capacity that's going to come on. So uh, just totally different environment to what I'm used to. Yeah, I guess maybe the well, I'm I'm speculating here, but. The cabling seems like one of the really complicated challenges of an offshore wind farm, right? I mean, maybe just mashing these things into the ground. I mean, the suction case and jacket doesn't seem complicated, right? Um, plus, if we, if anyone's going to adopt my King Kong method of, you know, creating a giant creature to just pile drive them in with their fists, it's going to be really simple. Um, but, Alan, I mean, where do you feel like the big piece of complexity comes into these offshore wind farms if it's not really that hard to plant 20 of these out at sea in a month i think it's the infrastructure i think it's all the equipment and the ships and the people all the and, connections and, the, and yeah yeah it's, it's all the little detail things you never think of plunking a wind turbine into the water okay you know it, it's complicated but with the right equipment and the right people you'd be surprised what the human human race can do if given the right incentive to go get it done and I, I think in this particular case, I do think investors in offshore wind see a huge opportunity and they are going to go after it. And in the United States, we're talking about building ships right now, which is something we just don't do uh, and we haven't done since probably World War II or shortly thereafter. So, you know, it all it's all an economic driven system. If there's an economic incentive to get them in faster and to get a, a bonus at the end, guess what? We're going to go after it and we're going to try to get it done. And, and that's why you see these crazy record numbers. And I think the same thing exists in the United States. The comparison in the United States is going to go like this. They're talking about putting, what, 
three gigawatts out in the ocean, and, and by 2030, that's a lot. Uh, that's like three or four times the uh, the rate at which we're putting wind turbines up at the at the moment. Well, you hang enough cash out there, guess what? Someone will do it. And I, I think that's what it'll take. If you're really serious about doing it, companies like GE would respond to the cash flow and would get it done. Uh, and I, I think that exists around the world. That you know, the United States is not unique in that. But this is this is the, I think this is a dichotomy. And, and and Rosemary, I think you probably see the same thing in Australia, where things that the industry or the government really wants to turn on and make happen, they're going to pour buckets of cash into it. And guess what? Usually gets done. Crazily enough. Well, I guess this is partly like you know, if you're going to build a house and just you know your own neighborhood. You could truck over the lumber and, you know, truck over the, like, you could do it in lots of different pieces and it would kind of be more complex. But if you're going to build a house on the top of a mountain in a very inhospitable place, you'd prefab a lot more stuff, take it up in chunks, and that house would be together a lot faster. This That's probably a, a decent analogy for what's happening here. Because you think of this being really hard to install these offshore, and obviously it's really costly, but they're doing so much of the work, I assume, onshore getting every every duck in a row where they get out there and it's just like connect A to B, B to C, C to D, E to F, and let's move on to the next one. I mean, Rosemary, you've, you've been part of all these processes. Is that obviously not offshore, but, you know, is that sort of how they try to do this? Just make it as simple and as safe as possible just to do as much onshore and get all the complexity out of the way before they go out there? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's the golden rule is when you're, you know, working on offshore projects, anything that can happen onshore should happen onshore. Um, so yeah, I'm sure you're right that that's the reason why they've been able to go so fast. I think I remember from the article as well that it was, um, that was, it was six months for a certain part of the project to happen. I think that they had already done some, um, some, you know, groundwork, <laughs> so to speak. It's probably not the right word when it's offshore, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think that there was some preparation done and then, you know, this one, one phase of it goes faster than you would expect and likely due to a lot of, Good preparation. Well, speaking of complex things, uh, LM Wind Power has announced that at their Cherbourg factory, their second 107-meter wind turbine blade mold is now, um, I don't know, operating is not the right word, but available to have things poured inside it, laid inside it, cured inside it. Um, how big of a feat is this, Rosemary, to get one of these new 107 meter long molds out. I think it's a big deal. I mean, I was working at LM when um, that project started and I, I know how huge of a big deal it was. They had to build a whole new factory because the mold is um, so big. They just <laughs> simply, you know, wouldn't have the space in a normal factory. Also, it has to be, you know, right on the... Um, right next to the sea so that you can you don't have to do any land transport because the blades are so big so the fact that they've got a second mold now basically means that they've got the the demand for that that's probably the most exciting thing it means people are, are really buying these blades they would definitely wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't take the space and the cost of the new mold just for the fun of it so um yeah they'll obviously be able to make twice as many now as they they could before make them twice as fast anyway um so i think it's a huge deal yeah and what is the typical rate? I mean, if they say, all right, the mold's ready to go, we're starting on Monday morning, how long until that blade leaves the mold and is either 
ready for the next stage and the blade and the molds uh, ready to be used again, or it's just already com- or completely done. It varies a, a lot depending on how big the blade is. So back in the day, uh, I'm sure that they could, you know, make a whole blade in a day. But um, for the more medium sized blades now, you'll probably see one blade per day running off the end of a mold, but it will have been in the factory for maybe five, seven, ten days, depending how big it it is but these 107 meter blades i don't know how long they they take and uh, if i did I, <laughs> I don't think i'd be able to say but uh i'm sure that they're not getting one blade per day out of this factory i'm sure it's um much longer than that because i mean they're so huge and it's not like things scale in a, a funny way with with composites you know it's um you make a blade that's you know maybe well like 25 percent longer than the previous longer one um but previous longest one but it's not just 25 percent harder because you know when you've got really thick laminates now you can't necessarily cure everything at once the root diameters are really big so you know it doesn't the old methods of laying the fabric in um, might not work anymore so you know it it gets kind of exponentially harder the the longer that they go so this is a, a really impressive blade and uh, I'm really happy to see that they're, you know, it's um, becoming more mature and, you know, it's a serial serial production product now, not just like a, a niche, niche uh, handcrafted <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these will go off to the 12 megawatt Halley 8X, which is cool. It's cool to be a part of that, that new turbine. And we haven't really seen many of these new ones out there in, in the, in the world. Of course, they're about to be, there's some big turbines from all the major, major manufacturers, you know, getting placed in these offshore farms. But, um, yeah, the, the big gear up where we'll see hundreds of Halley 8Xs and um, 14222DDs and the Vestas 15 megawatt, all these out, let's see, cranking out power. That's that's going to be pretty, pretty soon. Um, so last year up on our docket today, you know, Puerto Rico was decimated by Hurricane a couple years, uh, Hurricane Maria in 2017. And now FEMA here in the U.S. is tasked with rebuilding their electric grid. And people are upset that they've basically tasked uh, fossil fuels to be the official choice um, of the Puerto Rico Rico rebuild. And a lot of people are saying, hey, this was a chance to start brand new. Why aren't we starting brand new with renewables? Alan, what's your first thought here? I think the island can't support it at the moment, one. And two... I think there are bigger issues to tackle uh, that will have more consequence. And I th- you, I think you have to know where to put the money and for the biggest bang for the dollar. And when Puerto Rico has been hit with some of these hurricanes, it's done a, a tremendous amount of damage. Essentially, all the exposed transmission lines get toppled over. They lose power in large sections of the island which then causes even further problems uh, and it it takes longer to get back up and running again because you don't have power. Uh, I I wonder if it makes a lot more sense to sort of sectionalize the the, the grid, bury some of the wires if they can. I know it's the terrain may not be, (laughs) may not be easy to do that there, but I I think you got to hurricane proof some of this and I, I, I use the example of, of uh, New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans has had a lot of problems, but one of the things they haven't had problems with is that they've, in a lot of Gulf communities, is that they started burying the power lines. Uh, so you have much more reliable power. I think if they have to use petroleum for a while longer, so be it. 
I'd rather have people have power, have access to hospital care, have access to medicine, have ac- access to refrigeration, to store food and do those things after a hurricane than worrying about trying to reassemble a wind turbine. The, the, the wind speeds are unbelievable and the hurricanes are unbelievable there. Same thing for solar. I think it would solar would be pretty vulnerable to the environment that they're in. And uh, Rosemary, I don't know if you have that kind of environment in the southern hemisphere, but boy, we just, there's some islands off the coast of America that just get hammered. Yeah, it's interesting. I I, um, I definitely agree that I, I'm sure that the reason why they're replacing it with fossil fuels is because they don't want to make Puerto Ricans, uh, you know, guinea pigs um, in, or be seen to be doing that. I think definitely the most important thing is they get uh, electricity back as reliable as possible, as fast as possible. But I do think that there is some potential for a distributed energy system um, to increase their reliability in the long run. I would have thought, I mean, I'm no expert, but I would have thought that if you can design a roof to to stay on a building um, during the wind speeds that they see, that you could also design a solar panel to to stay on a, a roof. And then combined with, you know, some community batteries or household batteries, even if, you know, certain parts, islands or, you know, parts of the, the grid were taken out. If you've got, you know, distributed battery storage and solar, then it shouldn't be as devastating for the community as a whole. But I would probably, if it was up to me, I would be doing that in parallel with, you know, first of all, getting the thing that you know works, working as soon as possible. And then secondly, going as far as you can with, um, yeah, with with solar and um, and community or, or household batteries. It seems like it would be a... Yeah, a good good thing to try. Well, and I have a question for both of you. With solar, um, this is something so my, my dad grew up in Oklahoma, and he never got hit by a tornado, but he said once he saw just the debris from one that was close. And, you, and, and so for me, when I think about a solar panel, I don't think as much the issue is only it's staying on, on, the, on the house itself or on the building, but also can it absorb sticks and rocks and debris being thrown at 120 miles per hour. And that's, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but it, it seems pretty complicated to keep solar panels um, online in a hurricane. And my question was the distributed battery network. I think it makes engineering sense. I think it always will make engineering sense because it just spreads out the risk, right? But the cost is still really high. I think the the Red Earth batteries, I was looking online on Red Earth there to see how much a, a, a smaller battery system costs. And it was like 12 grand for seven kilowatts. Uh, and they had systems up to 30 kilowatts. Like, wow, okay, that's uh, $50,000, $60,000 Australian dollars, but still dollars. It's a lot of money. <laughs> Is that some dis- distal currency? Come on. <laughs> I don't know the exchange rate. I mean, it's if I was talking about Canada. <laughs> Well, you get know. your own, get your own money. Call your own thing. Yeah. Like we call it dollar days. <laughs> there you go. But I, I can't see a lot of people in Puerto Rico having the wherewithal to buy this. Yeah, right. I mean, how, how many people in Puerto? How many people in America could buy that? I, I, I not me. I couldn't afford that. Yeah, but, but they're not buying the new gas power plants either. I mean, I would uh, imagine that it would no. be a, a government-supported rebuilding initiative. And, and also it would be community batteries, household batteries even, are still emerging technology, I would say. So, mm. you know, there is something that other people can learn by rolling it out. It would be a large-scale um I don't know what what the border of a, between a microgrid and just a grid is, but it, I mean it would be a large microgrid if um, if it became one. But um, yeah, I I I think it would make a really good 
um, program to learn more about what you can do with more distributed energy and batteries. But, you know, I, I do love that um, <laughs> distributed energy stuff. So maybe that's just my own personal bias. Well, this is one of the, one of the solutions that I think this is somewhere we got to get because I, this effect is happening in Europe. Forget about Puerto Rico for a minute. It's happening all over Europe. If you're going to move to renewables, you're going to have to have battery storage. I don't think there's any way to get around that. And if we can drop the cost of some of these batteries, I mean, large-scale battery storage would definitely change the the future of a country like Puerto Rico. Uh, you could, if you have a gas-burning power plant, great. On the off hours, you're storing that energy and it's not burning it off. You're actually creating something you can use a little bit later. So it's it'd be a much more efficient system. And I, it, it just boggles my mind that we keep t- seeing a lot of discussion about renewable energy and almost zero about large-scale batteries, which they have to go together. They have to go together. And if they don't go together, they're going to have the situation we have in parts of Germany and other places. They're not alone. Or they're going to have blackouts because the winds winds are lower, crazily enough, and they can't generate enough electricity at this moment. It just something's wrong. We just, the balance isn't there. The engineering's off. Uh, we rely too much on people in the press to decide engineering things. <laughs> that's my take on it but do you i mean i, I probably uh, i'm watching a different part of the media than most people but i see everyone obsessed with um with batteries and energy storage in general i mean we've got so many new technologies um gravity storage everyone's carrying on about about that compressed air flow batteries um pumped hydro i i Maybe it's my personal obsession, so maybe that's why I'm like seeking out these stories and getting recommended them. But I see people talking a lot, but you don't you don't think that that's true for the wider non non geek media? Well, let's just that's Dan. Dan Switzerland in this. Dan in America. <laughs> when's the last time you heard anybody talking about a large scale battery project on the new in the news? In the news, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't watch TV, but it's it's definitely not a mainstream thing that people care about. It's not not really newsworthy for someone. Yeah. Like <laughs> our power works. Like we don't care, right? right. Like no one cares. That's what happens. If That's exactly if what happens. Yeah, if you're Puerto Rico, you care because I mean these people and businesses without power, without without lights. Um, but that's not an issue in mainstream U.S. You know, you pay your electric bill and you're fine. Like whatever. Um, so until that is disrupted, I don't know that anyone's really going to think too hard about it. I don't think it's going to be very successful in the news cycle. Hmm. So, yeah. Now, you know, with, with things like Texas though, like that major power outage that caused, um, that freeze that caused, you know, people lost their lives. That's the sort of the kind of thing that gets people thinking about keeping their lights on, right? Every time, you know, my parents would have a, you know, a huge storm and a power line would go down, they'd start talking again about getting a generator, right? And they, and they did yeah. buy one, but it was never a huge part of their life. And then when electric, electricity was reliable again, when I think they maybe buried lines near my house, my parents' house, but you know, it became a non-issue. So I think it comes down to grid stability in general for so, people to start to, to really give a hoot. Yeah, and let's let's talk about California for a brief second because I think this plays exactly into this discussion, which is California this week decided that you cannot – you will no longer be able to buy a gas generator. So when the power goes out, your power is out. You can't buy a, a gas-powered lawnmower pretty soon. You can't buy a gas-powered weed whacker, whatever that translates to in other countries. I don't know. Uh, but, a snapper. Uh, Oh, there you go. Like, okay. Called whippersnippers. 
Whippersnipper. That's oh, actually a better name. That's it's amazing. a better name. I'm, I'm sorry that what, to hear that that's not what you call them because it's always fun to, yeah. to say the word whippersnipper. It is. It is indeed. Now, Alan, is that to cut emit carbon emissions yeah. or is that to keep California from catching on fire? Like, are they banning matches well, too and candles? Because they you know, probably should go ahead and do that now. Well, <laughs> yeah. Right. California is full of blackouts. So what's that happened? Uh, what happens is people buy generators. Right, so people have generators because they don't want to lose all their food in the refrigerator, and they have some means of hanging, holding tight for a couple of days so the power comes back on. And now they're cutting off that ability. And, and this is the kind of uh, policy that I think that really hurts renewables. For God's sakes, if you if you're going to have renewables that are not always reliable for a variety of reasons, forget about what the cause is. You need to have some other backup system set up in place to handle that. And when you cut citizens off from it, what what you create and what California is going to create, I think, is a lot of wrath. <laughs> and when the lights go out and you, you can't run your generator or you, your, your mother-in-law who's 90 at home by herself doesn't have power, people get really upset with that. And I think California's going to be the first one to do that in the United States where it's going to turn. Meanwhile, in Texas, they may have had a blackout, but I guarantee you there, there's some process in place that's going to try to prevent that from happening. And my guess is that since Elon Musk is moving from California to Texas, that Texas will all of a sudden have this great battery capacity sitting in West Texas next to all the wind turbines. That makes infinite sense to me. Uh, so, you know, you see just two distinctive states doing going in polar opposite directions right now. Which one will win? I got my money on Texas. Uh, but California <laughs> thinks it's going in the right direction. So be it. Yeah. Well, and I don't know the economics of battery, of home battery power, um, but they are expensive. I mean, we know that mm -hmm. for sure. Like, a, yeah. you know, a Tesla Powerwall, you can get a bunch of different. If it's one wall or one, you know, segment of it, you can get, you know, different amounts to, depending on your energy needs, but they're expensive. And if you're talking about five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000, like, why are you going to spend that money? Do you either have chronic blackouts or does this um, reduce your energy costs enough where it's going to pay for yourself? And if it's not, the answer is not yes to one of those two questions, there's no need to ever buy it. Or you just wait and let the cost come down. And as the costs come down, the energy storage capacity goes up just like anything else i mean um, i'm in love with my new macbook here because the battery life is now insane <laughs> that's more to the processor than the battery but battery life has, has improved on everything i mean and charging technology has improved so yeah it'll be interesting to see what precipitates the move to to more home battery storage but i think like rosemary said in australia it makes more sense where they feel like they're being price gouged yes. and if you can control control more of your own destiny that makes a lot of sense. If you're Puerto Rico, you don't want to go offline. That makes a ton of sense. Um, where it's more stable than it, it, it probably doesn't. But yeah, this, the community batteries, I can't imagine why anyone would want to get involved with that when they don't really have power problems here in the U.S. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and sign up for the Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes of this podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe and tune in to Rosemary's YouTube channel. She's doing some awesome live streams sponsored um, by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. And her videos are just terrific in general. They've got some great guests, including some of our old friends, such as Paul Guype, 
So definitely check out his episode. I watched it the other day. Really funny. Uh, and as him and Rosemary dispelled a lot of uh, wind turbine uh, design myths. So good stuff coming from her on her YouTube channel as well. So thanks again for listening or watching, and we'll see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.